Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Joining me now is Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Uh, Good morning, Ian. Merry Christmas. How are you? Merry Christmas to you, Scott. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. So, uh, Boxing Day today, a lot of people out and about and uh, probably going to end up, you know, hitting some restaurants, maybe some happy hour, that type of thing. But this is like, this is kind of it, right? It's like this week and then we get into January, which is notably slower season for dining out and going out for drinks and stuff as people try to sort of recoup some of that money. But how, like, how was the holidays for the restaurant industry. I mean, I went out a few times, had some Christmas cheer, and things seemed like they were like they were normal, like they were bumping a little bit. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, I think the uh, what we look back on in 2023 was, um, you know, our business was pretty stable from a you know revenue point of view, a customer point of view. What wasn't stable was the profitability, and it was interesting that um, uh, actually Restaurants Canada came out with a study. It said I found this really interesting that. Um, Food prices and costs in restaurant went up this year about 20%, but what they call menu inflation, that's, that's how much menu prices went up, went up about 7%. So we have a gap of about 13% in, uh, in profitability. So you're right, the restaurants have been busy. Um, people are using them a little differently in, in the last part of 2023. They're more, more inclined to maybe do sort of happy hour and maybe do uh, appetizers versus full-on meals. But, you know, the business is there. And certainly, you know, as you say, today people are shopping. They'll stop in and have a little lunch here and a snack there and a glass of wine here. But um, what we're what the biggest problem right now is profitability. And that's just been straight inflation. The good news is that we're forecasting this to stabilize for 2024. And I think we've got our, our sights set on that with a, a bit more positive outlook for uh, 2024 than 2023. Okay, well, that's good to hear. Um, that Those numbers, that statistic is really interesting, though, where you sort of say yeah. 20, 20% increase in cost and only 7% increase in menu prices. And I think that's a really good stat for us to sort of hear about because, you know, you go to a restaurant and you see an item that you're used to getting at, I don't know, 15 bucks. And now yep. it's, now it's, you know, 17, 18, $20 in some case. I, I took my parents out for breakfast last week and we went to a famous, uh, well-known breakfast place and I picked yep. up the tab because that's the type of generous guy I am. And I thought, oh, there's no <laughs> booze here. We're just having breakfast. And for the three of us with the tip, it was a hundred bucks. And I was just like, this is insane. But when yep. you think about the fact that it's even more insane for the restaurant, because that profit margin has shrunk and they're paying that much more, they should be charging even more than that. Yeah, we were sort of kind of joking that no one's going to pay 30 bucks for a hamburger. But I mean, there is a story uh, of a little place that's now closed. And we've had a lot of that happening, smaller places. And it was a... Um, 
a little Japanese restaurant. They were selling, um, uh, and so they had a, a bowl on their menu, and it was real crab. They were selling for twenty eight dollars, and the owner said, "I actually need this just to uh, charge forty bucks <sighs> to make a profit." And but he said, "At forty bucks, no one's going to buy it." So. You know, we're looking at, you know, everybody's going to re-engineer their menus, looking at ways to not cut quality, but, you know, maybe bring in some different menu items that the food costs aren't quite as high. Um, You know, our costs do go down, as you point out, in January and February. Those are the slow months. The one that's really aggravating everybody right now, and I feel really sorry for uh, small businesses in particular, is the looming payment of the uh, federal government loans that are due on January 18th. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, basically, you know, these businesses have to find $40,000, this is a simple version, to pay back. So they, um, they, they actually, um, there's $60,000 loans, so they pay back 40, the government forgoes 20. But the problem is, is that the, the economy was just not strong enough for most small businesses, not just restaurants, but all these businesses across Canada to accumulate that kind of cash. A lot of businesses then went to the bank and said, can I borrow the money and get a bank loan to pay the government? And the answer is, eh, you know, in a lot of cases, um, their credit lines are maxed. They've right. already taken out a whole bunch of loans to keep their businesses afloat. So I'm, I'm worried about that. I think um, I know some, some, some businesses personally that are really struggled and they're really stressed. You know, they're really, really stressed of what they're going to do and how they're going to survive. So that's really sad. And, and, Everybody, not just us, but everybody in Canada that's, that's representing business have been to the federal government to say, look, you know, extend it. No one wants a freebie. No one wants the money to be given. Just can you extend it for a year or two and give us a bit more breathing room as the economy starts to stabilize? But so far, um, we've got about, about <laughs> up under the 25 days before the deadline and nothing from the federal government. So we'll see. There's always hope. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, for sure, like I, I know people that are in that scenario as well. I have a couple of friends who are kind of in the, in not kind of, but like are in the industry and own a couple of spots, yeah. you know, around the city and stuff. And they're facing those things and they're, you know, talking about how difficult these next couple of months are going to be. Yeah. Now we sort of talk about that overhead cost on food and I, I want to put it, put that same sort of filter over um, alcohol because uh, my understanding at least has always been that that's where the biggest profit margin is, is in alcohol sales. And, you know, when people go out to drink, you know, the restaurant has an opportunity to make a little bit of money back um, and people don't necessarily need to order food. So, or, or is the same thing happening with alcohol yeah, sales as well? You know, I, I think the trend there, I mean, the good news is, is that we've got Uber to, I mean, we didn't have that, you know, five years ago. So that makes the decision to sort of go have a few drinks and get home safely that much easier uh, as opposed to, you know, no transportation, waiting for taxis. So we're really happy about that. We had a major role in, in, in getting Uber into B.C. But what we're seeing going into January and we're seeing right now, and it's a demographic one, too, is that the younger demographic are tending to drink less. Mm. And, and we're seeing a move towards non-alcoholic uh, drinks. Um, which these are not bad things. And we, we've seen a, a place open up in Vancouver that's dedicated to non-alcohol drinks. Um, so that's kind of cool. So the, um, and then you've got the older demographic. Of course, everybody's thinking, you know what? I should keep an eye on how much I, dr- I do drink. And going into January, everybody's thinking, okay, dry January. So those things, you know, th- those are good things. Um, but for us, you're absolutely right. Liquor sales in a restaurant are maybe... 35, 40%, and they do make a difference. You know, um, 
they absolutely make a difference incrementally to a business. You'll see, look at businesses that are um, that don't have a lot of sales and alcohol. It's even harder for them on a profit margin to to make but uh, to make it. So, you know, alcohol sales do play a role. But um, we're seeing again. I think this is a good trend. More moderation um, as we go forward here. Yeah, and one of the things that I was talking about with Simi uh, just before nine o'clock here was. Uh, January, February, that's sort of when we have things like uh, Dine Out Vancouver that hopefully provide a boost to the industry as well. Uh, does that, you know, I, I, can, when we, I love Dine Out, but I also look at yeah. it and I'm like, how is, this, how is this profitable? Is that something that looking forward is going to help or hurt the industry uh, well, in 2024? You know, I think what happens is that um, it, restaurants buy into certainty. So we're, we do, um, there's Dine Out Vancouver, there's one in Victoria. There's one in the Okanagan, all about the same time. So what they get is they know, um, you know, in advance pretty much how many customers, how many of the guests are coming in. So that helps them buy. It helps them maybe buy more efficiently. They can set a menu that, you know, they, they have set menus. So they try to curate a menu that's got some marge, good margin in it. And, um, you know, I think the thing about restaurants, too, is that sometimes, in, in fact, most times, most times is about the experience as much as it is about the food. And so, you know, the restaurants are going to be equally as, as concerned about making sure that you, when you go with your parents or wherever you go, really enjoy that experience and you've got something to talk about. So the dine-out programs really do help because they just get people sort of thinking about that. And they go, you know what, what we see in, in our business is that every time there's an event like a hockey event or, um, or concerts or those sorts of things, particularly in Vancouver, um, it brings people out. And they always find some money to spend in restaurants to support it. So those are good things. If we didn't have that, particularly, you know, the trend that people are sort of coming back to their offices, but not quite, um, we'd be feeling it a lot more in, in the, you know, Victoria and Vancouver. But that's really helping us a lot as well, too. Yeah, I always see those things like dine out as uh, an opportunity to try a place that I might not normally go to. You know, when you yeah, know right. you're going to get something that's kind of curated and is almost guaranteed to be great and a great value. And it's an opportunity to go out and, you know, sort of uh, stretch your legs a little bit in the industry. So I, I always look forward to that. I'm looking forward to that as well. Ian Tostenson, president, CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Thanks so much for being here. And uh, of course, all the best in 2024. I'm sure, like you say, that things are going to bounce back and it's going to be great because I think we have a fantastic food and restaurant scene here. And I uh, would hate for it to, you know, like it always sucks when you hear about one of these cool places that have been around for forever struggling or closing their doors and stuff. So um, thank you so much for being here and for the work that you do. Thank you, Scott. Happy New Year to you and everybody around you. One of the big things that has been talked about over and over and over for years in our province, in our city, and even more so, especially so over this last year, is housing. Uh, it's a human right. It should be a human right. It's also a tremendous revenue generator for private sectors and for just generalized people. Like I've mentioned many times on this radio station that I'm a homeowner in Metro Vancouver. The reason I'm a homeowner is because I got into the housing market at a very like low time and a very starter sized condo and was able to you know turn a profit on that and the next one and the next one and as a result of that was able to like build a house so i I profited from the housing market, but is that something that should be allowed? How do we restrict that so that 
housing doesn't just become this commodity that it sort of has become. How do we encourage like people to build more housing? It's so complicated. Uh, I'd love to know where you stand on all of this and if you have any thoughts or ideas about it, 604-280-9898. But first, Sonia Firstineau is here. She's the leader of the BC Green Party, and she put out a really interesting tweet uh, about Monopoly, you know, the game that we all love to play, the Parker Brothers, Monopoly, and... uh, that sort of feels monopoly like a game that people are playing with what should be a human right here in our city. That sure is what it seems like, Scott. That's um, when we put out that post, I was really reflecting on looking at data around how much real estate investment trusts, for example, have been buying up properties. And uh, in the last 23 years, um, they have been significant purchasers of real of uh, rental properties and we've seen what's happened to rents in the last 25 years and i think we really have to look at the the problem that we have in housing is that it has become a way for some groups and some individuals to make a lot of money and that human right to housing has been affected in the meantime Absolutely. And, you know, as much as I get the the point of it is to be like, this is somewhat tongue in cheek, but it really does feel like monopoly in that it essentially was like, this is a, for some people almost, it feels like this is a game and I want to win, which means that in effect, like other people will lose as opposed to like a society where it's more beneficial if no one wins and no one loses, we all just kind of work together, right? As opposed to this idea that like, for me to win, I have to collect all of these things so that other people can't collect them. And now we're left with, you know, people who need homes that that can't afford them and some people who are making more money than it feels like they need or have any right to have. Well, right after the end of the legislative session, there was a news story that came out that said Jeff Bezos, one of the people that has literally hundreds of billions of dollars of wealth, uh, is starting a new real estate investment trust to purchase single-family houses. And this is one of the, the concerns we raised with the NDP during the debate of their housing legislation in November, which was there is no protections in that debate around sort of massive upzoning across the province. There were no protections against things like real estate investment trusts being able to purchase huge swaths of single-family housing and turn it into a monopoly board, essentially, where anybody who wants to land on that part of the province is going to be paying their rent to the REITs. Right. So just to, so what you're talking about there is like, if I wanted to, let's say in a, in a, you know, made up world that I had enough money to do this, if I wanted to go and buy a house, it would be, you know, like me and you and a couple of other families and then a corporation with, you know, completely right. different assets bidding against us on something that, like, they're not going to be living in. You know, like, if I bought it, my family would be living in it, but they're not living in it. They're using it as a part of their business. And housing shouldn't right. be a business. That's right. And that's, that's exactly, that's exactly the, the conditions that we're facing right now, where people are up against businesses when they're bidding on housing or when they're um, trying to get into the, the housing market. So what is missing from our housing market is enough non-market supply to make sure that there is 
affordable housing for people who need it. And in the 1990s, the federal government stopped investing in non-market housing, so co-op housing, social housing, not-for-profit housing. And that means decade over decade, uh, we've seen less and less of, of non-market housing. And so n- now we have a, a provincial government, the NDP, saying, don't worry, don't worry, we know we have this housing crisis, we'll just let the market, you know, solve it. And I think that most of us can agree that in a, like a monopoly game, the market just does more of the same as what it's doing. What we need is protections in place for that truly affordable non-market housing. We need investments in in affordable non-market housing. We need to recognize that as as long as there are significant numbers of people in BC, and right now it's about 15% of people in BC who can't meet their core housing needs because they're paying more than 30% of their income in housing, as long as we have those conditions, it means that we're all not thriving to the extent that we can, right? It means that businesses can't find people to work in their businesses because they can't afford to live in the community. It means that we can't attract people to come and work here as teachers, uh, even doctors, um, because the housing is too expensive. And it really creates this um, kind of erosion of the health of our community. So we have to have solutions that focus on creating truly affordable housing. Right. And so it sounds like, and I mean, please, please tell, like, what does it, what does this look like? Is this, we need legislation, we need rules from government, Mm -hmm. we need uh, to rezone things. Like what, what's like this, I'm like, I follow the idea, Mm -hmm. but how do we get Mm -hmm. there? Do we take houses that are like, does the city buy housing and now say like, you can't raise the rent on this? Do, Do we build new houses, like just explain to me how, like, mm-hmm. let's start working our way back. Yeah. How does that, how does that look? That's, yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. One, I want to direct people to my colleague, Adam Olson's website, adamolsonmla.ca. Uh, he's written a very lengthy piece. He's gone through all of the legislation and the reports that were attached to that legislation. And he lays out some really, really important points, but it, it, it really, if we're looking at this, the, current housing affordability crisis, and that's what it is, it's an affordability crisis, then we have to take whatever solutions we can and ensure that we're putting those in place. So, for example, any um, market housing that's being built, a portion of that should be uh, considered to be non-market. And so there's a, there's a built-in uh, building that comes uh, along, building of non-market affordable housing. Um, there used to be a time, and we have to get back to this, when governments did invest in in building purpose-built non-market rentals. We need more of that. Uh, we need to look at how to support co-ops to be able to uh, create more cooperative housing everywhere in the province because that's such a, a, a stable and fantastic solution to affordable housing. Um, we need communities bringing forward their plans uh, and needs for social housing and supportive housing to be to be supported. And here in Cowichan, we've had, you know, a real solution for uh, getting people off of the streets in what's called the village. But it's been a real battle to get the provincial government to be a good partner on that. And other communities are looking at the same kind of solution. So it, there's no 
single thing that's going to address this, but what we need is a government that is focused on that affordable housing piece and not giving into this idea that, well, the market is just going to be able to produce what we need, and so we'll just hand over to the market the ability to build, you know, as much as it wants, wherever it wants. We do need more housing, but we need to make sure that it includes affordable housing and enough affordable housing to actually make a difference on this monopoly board that we're all on right now. Yeah, and because to, like, carry the monopoly board um, metaphor, like, one step further, anyone who's played that game knows that once you get like behind, you know, and one of the people mm-hmm. that you're playing with gets to the point that they have, in a sense, like the monopoly, it's impossible to get back to the point that you're like, can win, can win the game. You know, as soon as that person owns that property, they're, they're collecting all the rents. And then it's like, why are we even playing this anymore? Because I'll never catch up. And that is also the scenario here in our province where, you know, these people have gotten ahead and the idea is that like, oh, well, hey, Scott, if you worked really hard, you could catch up too. But that's just not the reality because the, 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 all, the cost of everything is outpacing my ability to catch up. And the money that I'm paying is going to those same people. It's just so frustrating. And um, yeah. It is. Well, it, yeah. And, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm a mother of teenagers right now. I have, I have uh, kids in their, in their teens and their 20s. And it always astonishes me that the wages that they are earning right now are not far off from the wages that I earned when I was a teenager in the 1980s. So not only are costs of everything, you know, way higher than they used to be, but income has not kept up. So basic, you know, minimum wage is certainly nowhere near what is necessary to be able to afford to live with the costs where they are, especially when it comes to housing. Um, And so we have this growing inequality problem. And and when we look at the, the billionaires in the last, three and a half years, you know, the billionaires went from the the wealthiest had tens of billions. Now they have hundreds of billions. And so you see that accelerating growth in in inequality that's happened in the in the last three and a half years. And and now there's all that capital, all of that wealth, and it's it's able to to create things like real estate investment trusts that can go around and, and purchase up housing wherever it wants. And this is what we need governments to be serious about, which is when we're not meeting the basic human right of housing for the people who live here, we don't just keep doing more of the same and think that that's going to solve the problem. It's not. Sonia First to Know is the leader of the BC Green Party. Uh, thank you so much for, you know, the information and sort of continuing the conversation because that's how we're going to, you know, work towards ending this sort of uh, unwinnable monopoly cycle that unfortunately is happening in real life for so many people. Um, so thank you for the work that you're doing to try to, you know, keep this top of mind for people and also to create some hopeful legislation to, um, you know, get get this turned around and moving in a different direction. Uh, thanks so much for chatting with us this morning. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And, and uh, you know, happy season and happy new year to you and your listeners. Good morning and welcome back to the Mike Smith Show. My name is Scott Schantz. I'll be filling in all week. And how was your holiday season 
financially? I know that's kind of a personal question, but things have been difficult for a lot of people over the last year. Inflation, cost of living, uh, jobs, all of that type of thing. Did you spend as much as you usually do? Did you save a little bit of money? Did you scale back? Did you do something different? I know uh, Simi, who hosts the morning show here, she was saying her family did this thing where the spending limit, they set a spending limit of like 20 bucks, and you couldn't spend more than that on a gift if you were buying someone a gift, which I think is kind of a cool and creative way to uh, to tackle you know the, the mass consumerism that comes with the holidays. But of course, I also really like to spend money and to buy really, really nice gift. It's an important thing to me for people to open their present and be like, whoa, what an awesome gift. This is so thoughtful. Thank you so much. So how did your holiday retail season go and how did it go uh, on the larger scale as well? Here now to weigh in is Bruce Winder. He's a retail analyst and author and he joins us now. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on the program. Yeah, it's great to have you. So uh, how was the, you know, the last couple of weeks, December, the holiday season? I mean, I know Boxing Day shopping happening now, but what, like, what does it look like? Uh, are we down? Are we normal? Uh, give me a, a ballpark idea. Yeah, sure. So we don't have any official data yet from Stats Canada, although Stats Canada came out with a uh, an estimate for November that says we were flat, which many people thought was a little lower. They expected to be up a little bit just because we had Black Friday and Cyber Monday in there, right? So that was, uh, October was up a little bit. November was flat. December was slow in the first couple weeks. And now the last week, uh, just before the 25th, uh, things were picking up quite a bit. I think we're going to have a decent boxing day uh, or really boxing week now when you think about it, right? Because there's a lot of people looking for deals. But overall, if you look at the season, most pundits would say that we're going to be down a little bit, maybe down, you know, low single digit in sales. Okay, sure. And do you know what people are saving on or what they're spending on? Do you have any insight? Is it uh, necessities? Is it gifts? Is it tech? What type of where are people spending their money? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, overall, there's a bit of a theme here that says consumers are buying more essentials this fall, this this holiday versus discretionary items. Having said that, you know, you always have the same sort of staple items out there, you know, things like electronics and apparel, small appliances, health and beauty. You know, those kind of products are always selling around this time of year. But there's been a bit of a movement, just a bit more towards sort of uh, more more the needs versus the wants. Yeah, that has been a, a thing in my household where the people who are adults, we sort of say, I'll buy you this thing and that will be mm-hmm. your present. And then we can focus the sort of fun money on the kids who Christmas has kind of exactly. kind of been for. But I also will admit that in between breaks here, I'm sort of cruising the the Boxing Day sales to sort of see what's out there. And oh, maybe I'm downtown. I'll stop in and see how much I can save on this thing because I'm probably going to need it in you know the next six months anyway. So, you know, we always we, we do want a deal. And it seems like the Boxing Day and like you say, Black Friday, Cyber Monday, those things are intended to draw people in. And it sounds like they work. Yeah, they do work. They do work. Um, a lot of people, though, are using uh, e-commerce this year, right? E-commerce had a bit of a bounce back. You know, it was sort of down a bit last year after being really high during the pandemic. But this year, a lot more people are buying online because they can find uh, deals a lot easier. I mean, Amazon dropped their impact, economic impact report last week. And they can ship to like 4,500 cities in about one to two days with Prime. 
and you can buy about 20 million items. So, so it's really hard, you know, to justify going to a store as much as it was say in the eighties or nineties. Yeah, that, that is unreal. Actually, one of the uh, stores that I'm looking at going past on my, on my way home from work here after my shift, it's an independent business here in Vancouver, a clothing store, a men's clothing store. And they Ooh. said no online. They do online sales, but no online shopping today. If you want any of these great deals that they're offering, it's in-store only. Is that common? Is there a benefit to that at all? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's common because you always want to let your consumer buy the way they want to buy. You don't want to force them to do that. Having said that, they may have a lot of in-store inventory that they've already shipped to their stores and they just want to clear it out because it's expensive to resend it to another warehouse or send it to the consumer. And they may want consumers to try to buy some other things when they're in there. So I understand it from a business perspective, but it's always dangerous when you kind of limit consumers from doing what they want to do. Well, that's kind of my thought is I'm like, yo, you know, if I could, if I could look at the thing that is for sale right now on the website, I might even buy it right now as opposed to waiting until, until after the show. But I also kind of wonder, oh, is this this cool shop that they want me to check out? They want me to come down and see what else is there and maybe, oh, I'll try this on while I'm here and end up buying a couple more things. So I just was curious if there's some sort of a strategy in there. And I guess I guess there I guess there could be. Um, How do you think we're going to do? You know, we're Boxing Day, like we talked about. We're going to get into the new year here where typically things really do slow down through January and February. What's your prediction there? Yeah, I mean, this week is all about the deals and later on in the week returns, right? There's going to be lots of returns coming back too. And then things slow down. There's, you know, it's very quiet in retail for uh, January, February. There's some, there's some good, uh, some good volume in things like fitness items and storage and maybe uh, outerwear, you know, if you need it, but this year has been a bit, uh, a bit green. Um, So, you know what, it really slows down and doesn't really pick up until you start to see the spring. Yeah. And that's a good question, actually, is where will people sort of find the most, the best deals if they're out this week and, and you know, early in January? Where are people going to save the most money on, on what sort of items? Yeah, usually it's on things like apparel because there's the highest margins. Like, you know, things like consumer electronics, um, margins are, are lower for the retailer, so they can't give as much savings unless they really got hung with a certain item they have to blow out. But definitely apparel, you know, but it's really wherever, whatever retailers sort of distressed right now saying, you know what, I got caught with all this, you know, maybe even outerwear, right? Because, you know, depending on when, where you are, I think Vancouver's been pretty, uh, pretty green this year as well, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, it so, has. You know, that kind of stuff would help, you know, things that are normally, you know, for snow items that have to sell. Uh, retailers don't want to carry this stuff over another year. So they're going to be motivated to blow it out as low price as possible. Right. Yeah. And you mentioned the returns thing, which yeah, I know a lot of places don't do it today because Boxing Day and they don't want it to be too busy. But yeah, a lot of people I think are sort of eyeing. It's like, oh, if I return this, I could put that money towards that thing that I have been saving up for. But a lot of places now too are, I have noticed this sort of shift back towards you got to have a receipt. For the last few years, I felt like they would say, oh, no receipt, that's no problem. We'll refund it for you, whatever we need to do, or give you a gift card. But is it just me or has more, have more places sort of, because people are maybe taking advantage of that, have more places sort of shift back towards we really need a receipt and proof of purchase before we do a return? No, you're bang on. Um, returns have tightened up significantly over the last two to three years. Long story short, e-commerce went through the roof. The return rate for e-commerce on average is three times that of brick and mortar. 
You've got so many returns. Uh, companies are losing money. They're tightening up, even even making people uh, pay restocking fees, lo- uh, shortening the time they can return, all kinds of little tricks to try to tighten that up. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned that. I want to just make sure I got that clear. People return an online order three times as much as they return an order to a brick and mortar store. That's right. That's on average, right? It varies a lot by category. Like apparel is massive, right? Sure. Cause they've got tried on buy five sizes and five colors. They try it on and then send half it back. Right. Right. That's what's killing retailers. So they're trying to tighten that up. And uh, in some cases, so, you know, returns are only available through store. You can't send them back through uh, online or they're saying, you know, uh, if you, if you buy something and return it, we're going to charge you 20%. All kinds of different little things to try to minimize that behavior. Yeah, see, that's really interesting because, like you were mentioning, a couple of years ago, a few years ago, there were, we all know the sort of retailers, the big names, where it was like, oh, I'll just take it back. I can wear it, even wear it a time or two and then take it back. And these places, exactly, in the yeah. name of customer service, they want, it, they want to take back everything. And, I, yeah, that's it was right. sort of I had this feeling that that was changing. And it was like, no, no, we're done being taken advantage of this yeah. way. And this is our way to fight back. But for me, I've always just found it more convenient to, I, like I said, I work downtown, so I'll, I'll just pop right. in there and return this thing. Whereas I view the idea of returning something that I ordered online as a bit more, a bit more effort going to a post office and packaging and you have to wait to get your credit card refund and then you check it and all that. But it looks like that's not exactly. a thing that bothers people. Eh? People are into that. Yeah, no, they're willing to do it. I mean, even though it's a lot of it's a lot of effort by the consumer too, but it's just not sustainable economically for retailers. And if retailers can't do it economically, you know, it's going to hurt consumers in pricing, right? And the price is already way up more than they than they were three to five years ago, right? So, and it's not great for the environment too. There's a whole environmental piece on that too that uh, hurts mother nature. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Uh, Bruce Winder, he is a retail analyst and author talking about what the retail numbers have been like over the holiday season and what we can expect through this week and then into the new year. Thanks so much for your time, Bruce. Really appreciate it. Anytime. Have a great holiday. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.